0: Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy.
1: We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Matthew. Episode two hundred and
0: forty-eight, recorded for the week of February 21st, 2024. A public service announcement on shared VPCs in AWS. Don't. <laughs> hi Matt. Hi Ryan. How's it going?
1: Good, how are you? Oh well. Yeah, you know,
0: it's uh, it's Wednesday almost friday i can, I can get a, i can get behind friday and it was a three-day weekend even and i'm still so excited for friday so
1: that's because four-day weeks mean you just do five days of work in four days yeah <laughs> let's be honest
0: <laughs> I w- i'm trying to figure that out because like if i go to the four-day work week if i can like ever convince a company i work for to do that like does that mean that every week is five days of work for in four days or do like people actually reduce the workload? i assume it's the lat the former not the latter but uh you know, I, I'd like to dream that maybe, maybe I would have less work to do in a week if I only worked four days. But I mean, honestly, I already worked 12 or 15 hour days anyway. So I guess if I only worked four of those, I'd just, you know, they're already getting my 40 hours. I should just stop. Yeah. <laughs> it's really on me. It's a me problem. Okay? Okay. The problem is me. I know it. <laughs> you should just not work as much. Mm-hmm. It's easy to say. I just have integrity and pride in my work.
1: <laughs> How dare you?
0: I know. <laughs> how dare i all right well on our ai is going great segment tonight uh last week we horrified you with ryan and i talking about uh state actor you know basically bioweapon attacks through chat gpt and this week <laughs> uh chat is here to talk about disrupting malicious uses of ai by state affiliated threat actors so you know it went from bad to worse <laughs> in one week Uh, In partnership with Microsoft Threat Intelligence, ChatGPT is uh, disrupting uh, many state-affiliated actors, and they highlighted five of them they disrupted recently, uh, that have amazing names such as Charcoal Typhoon, Salmon Typhoon, Crimson Sandstorm, (laughs) Emerald Sleet, and Forest Blizzard. And the only one of these that I actually think is pretty good is Crimson Sandstorm, because it's from Mm -hmm. the Iran-affiliated state actor, which I think is a good name. But Salmon Typhoon and Charcoal Typhoon, I don't, don't really know about those two. I, I don't hate on Emerald Sleet as much either. I like the
1: Forest Blizzard. Kind of is fitting
0: for Russia. Yeah, it's good for Russia too. But uh, basically, OpenAI uh, says that you know, they're building things into their current model, so they're limited in what they can do, and they believe it's important to stay ahead of the curve on evolving threats. And so they're working very closely with Microsoft threat intelligence to do that. They talked about some of the, uh, some of the many things that, uh, you know, they were doing with them. So they were researching various companies and cybersecurity tools. They were debugging their code, generating phishing campaigns out of it. Uh, they retrieved publicly available information on multiple intelligence agencies, uh, more scripting support. Uh, they were asking, uh, (laughs) ChatGPT how to make their malware evade detection. (laughs) <laughs> Which, you know, is always a good one. Uh, and uh, you know basic uh, phishing and spear phishing things as well and performing research on open source data into satellite communication protocols. not so great on that one. Uh, but overall, you know basically chat GPT says to get ahead of this, they're trying to do use a multi-pronged approach over monitoring disrupting militia state affiliated actors working together with AI ecosystem iterating on the safety mitigations and public transparency by posting blog posts that make us scared here at the clapbot So thank you for that. <laughs> we appreciate it. Uh, but yeah, I'm glad to see they're trying to get ahead of this. And, you know, it's hard with uh, IP spoofing and all the things to really see where these people are coming from. But, you know, Microsoft, Mandiant, all these companies are, you know, doing a lot of work trying to keep ahead of these states threat actors uh, and so they're able to publish known information about them that then chat gpt is able to use and say basically block them from using their tool as well as they can review for certain keywords and some of the prompts that you're putting into the system i'm sure for you know things that uh, they maybe want to stop
1: proactively yeah i feel like spear phishing you know generate me a spear phishing campaign hopefully should be blocked just just saying
2: I do like that, you know. All these state-sponsored actors—they're—they're they're just like us, you know, asking basic <laughs> scripting questions. <laughs> like, <yeah. laughs> I found that very humorous. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. When I was at the CTC event a couple weeks ago, someone asked about um, something around phishing or whatever, and and we were talking about the fact that um, you know basically the same tools that we have to write emails and write reviews and those kind of things are the tools they now have to write. Uh, your phishing attacks. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, you know, these are, you know, to see it actually in print, though, that they actually see people doing it, this kind of, uh, it's very, uh, cons- you know, I feel good because I predicted that was going to happen and to see it actually happening. Yeah. You know, sad, but also like, yep, people do exactly what we took them to do. If my kids are using it to cheat on tests. I mean, why wouldn't a hacker be using it to make illegitimate money? Right. Yeah. No. The
2: easier, the better. Right. It's the whole point exactly. of criminal enterprise.
0: I mean, script kitties have lived around for a very long time because oh, yes. that was the easy way to hack. You just go find someone else's hack and then you just use it and find someone who's unsecure and point it at them and then you own them. Uh, sorry, I didn't use leak code for that, but uh, I don't know how to say it out loud. <laughs> 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 Owns them? I don't, I, I don't yeah. know. It's so
2: Powned? Like is, is Powned, still yeah. Pwned? Like I don't know. Yeah, I think so. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I mean, they're all the new words that kids have today. I, I just don't understand. So... <laughs> I, I finally learned about Riz and cap and no cap. So yeah. you know, I'm, I'm sorry I need to slowly get up to speed on these things, but uh, you know, I don't, Matt, you're in for a world of hurt, man. Yeah,
1: <laughs> Your daughter, See, you guys are already learning all this stuff. I, my kid doesn't know any of this yeah. stuff yet, which is so, worse you know, because
0: you know, like what my kids have is derivative of what we had as kids. You know, we brought in cool and awesome and rad and all the dumb things we brought in as children. Uh, and you know, yeah, sure. you know, so like they've, you know, so the problem is, is that if this is where they're at, and the derivative of this is going to be your child's generation, you are really screwed. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I'll have to have a conversation with one of your kids at one point. Be like, okay, teach me what I need to know. Yeah,
0: <laughs> but like, apparently, the alpha generation, which is apparently the generation that's not my kids, but the the younger ones that are in elementary school right now, are even more crazy. Uh, and like, uh, we were talking recently about some YouTube thing where it's basically talking toilets. Have you seen this? oh yeah no and uh yeah that's so that you know if that's informing the growing minds of our youth uh skibbity toilet uh you are in trouble <laughs> that's what i know and uh yeah so uh just good luck to you <laughs> uh,
1: i'll keep you updated yeah, yeah. We look forward to your <laughs> uh,
0: your future endeavors and uh raising children in 2025 <laughs> <laughs> excellent <laughs> yeah. all right let's move on to aws uh, announcing the Data Solutions Framework on AWS, an opinionated open-source framework that accelerates building data solutions on AWS. It can take days or weeks to build an N10 solution on AWS within infrastructure's code and following best practices. But with the DSF, it takes just a few hours for you to start burning through money like crazy. <laughs> DSF is built using the CDK to package infrastructure components into L3 CDK constructs atop of AWS services. And those L3 constructs are opinionated implementations of common technical patterns and generally create multiple resources that are configured to work with each other. Uh, the CD code is of course in TypeScript and Python, so you can easily modify it as well as make it available to this code in npm and pyPy. Uh, some of the things that'll set up for you is uh data engineering tooling like Spark EMR tooling, data lake storage, and data lake catalogs, as well as tooling that leverages code commit, code pipeline, code build, S3, KMS,
2: Spark, CloudFormation, and Glue data catalogs. Yeah, I mean none of the the things in this are new, but it's it's the packaging of it all together. Um, mm-hmm. where you just sort of, with a few simple lines of of SDK code, really have the full infrastructure for a full data lake. Um, and so, you know, it's it's super cool, because this is always what, you know, as a customer, you're sort of wanting, like, give me the easy button, and then I can, then I'll, you know, play with it for a little while and customize it the way we want, right? And that's, I, I really like how Amazon's sort of delivering that, To their services. And so, you know, like they have light sale and they have beanstalk that are fully sort of managed on your behalf, but for, and they have a data lake where you can take advantage of the ROM. And this is sort of in the middle of that. And I like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of just goes back to Amazon has all the basics and they have the basics done well. And that now it's just piece, clue the pieces together and build those higher level services. So either, you know, this is kind of, the, I feel like, the middle ground of we have these five, ten services that you can glue together to create the solution, and at one point they'll make it into a full new product out of this.
0: Yeah, so I'm surprised they didn't just launch a managed service called AWS Data Lake. Uh, <laughs> exactly. like, I think one of the other cloud <laughs> providers has that, I don't remember which one it is, maybe. Yeah. Whoever has Lakehouse, is that Google? Or is that Azure? Uh, I don't remember. But one of them has, one of them has a product that's kind of already this. <laughs>
2: Well, I wonder if it's this or if it's, you know, because I think that Amazon does have a data lake sort of service as well, but it's more, it's more of a foundational building block than a full end-to-end pipeline with your, you know, CICD through multiple environments and your direct tooling for your data engineers. So, I don't know. Yeah, it's nice. I
0: I Mm -hmm. mean, the fact that it uses all open source tooling is kind of the nice part about it. So you can, I mean, other than some of the opinionated tools they chose for CI/CD, but those are replaceable with Jenkins. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everyone has S3 type capabilities in our object storage solution. They all have uh, access to some of a Spark tooling. So uh, a lot of, I mean, to get blue data catalogs, maybe the only real secret sauce in here. And and most other solutions do have other ETL solutions that are probably better anyways. Um, You know, so all this is very repeatable also in other clouds. So even if you, you know, are looking for a solution that's on top of or multi-cloud or hybrid. This can be used for any of those type of things too, which is kind of nice. So it gives you at least an opinionated option, and then you can you can tweak it and modify it since it's all CDK tool uh, code to whatever you want it to be. The API Gateway finally supports TLS 1.3 on its regional REST, HTTP, and WebSocket endpoints. Uh, of course, TLS 1.3 on API Gateway offloads encryption and decryption of TLS traffic from your application servers to API Gateway. And this will optimize for performance and security through the use of a one round trip TLS handshake, exclusively supporting ciphers that offer for perfect forward secrecy. And I assume this is also a prerequisite for them to be able to support
2: mutual TLS
0: on uh, API Gateway, which would be probably the last big feature I think they're missing on the
2: API Gateway. It's interesting. I hadn't even thought of that. I just figured they were trying to come up to parity. You know, 1.3 has been around for a while, and and I assume that there's going to be certain standards where it's going to you know, more and more companies will start to enforce that on their API endpoints. So was kind of interesting.
0: They have supported mutual TLS on API Gateway and the REST interface already for a while. That's um, what I thought. But it uh, it definitely, you know, doesn't support the other protocols and then it hasn't supported uh, using a special version of TLS. It wasn't even using, which is on top of TLS 1.2. So this is nice because this will probably go to 1.3 as well. But uh, if we can get it to the WebSocket and as well,
1: then we're even better. I mean, the one piece of it i don't like is that they didn't do it which makes sense across the board on all the different flavors of API gateway but that's because cloudfront would need to actually handle 1.3 also. So I get why they're, you know, slowly rolling it out but you know, just doing it on a regional means someone's going to go in there and try to do it on global and not understand why and then
2: mm-hmm.
1: you're going to go bang your head in the wall until you really sit down and figure out oh yeah this is actually cloudfront API gateway under the hood.
2: Yeah.
0: So I know CloudFront does support TLSv1.3 for viewer connections to the HTTPS endpoint. So like it's it's all coming together slowly. It's you know it's <laughs> this is one of those moments where you see the two pizza box teams uh, at <laughs> AWS <laughs> because it's mm-hmm. like someone created all the specs and all the documentation for this uh, in the protocol, and then they basically they've been slowly rolling it out on people's product roadmaps as they can adopt it. Um, versus you know like we see the more verticalized integration at Google where you know they would enable us at a, at a global level, and everyone would now support TLS 1.3. Um, it's just different architectural things guard duty runtime monitoring now protects workloads running in shared VPCs across all supported compute services VPC sharing allows multiple AWS accounts to create their application resources such as Amazon EC2 instances into a shared centrally managed VPC Customers use shared VPCs to simplify network management across different accounts in the organization, providing cost benefits and reduced operational overhead with fewer VPCs to manage. Uh, and at this point, uh, Matthew, Ryan, and I would all like to remind you that you should never use shared VPCs. <laughs> Please
2: just don't. Yeah. It, it is not a good path. You will regret your life choices. There are sharp edges all not over. Not immediately the place. either. Not immediately. That's the biggest problem.
0: Yeah. 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 You won't you won't burn, you won't get burned by it until that moment. And then you'll be like in the middle of something and all of a sudden You'll hit it, and it'll hurt, and it'll cut you deeply, <laughs> and uh, you might get fired over it too. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> maybe not that bad, but uh, yeah. definitely, uh, you know, it, on paper, it sounds amazing, and you're like, this is solves all of my problems of multi accounts and and VPCs, and you know, what I do with my my AD controllers? Do I really have to deploy them in every VPC, or or do uh, you know, basically peering and all the other terrible solutions you can do for connecting things together? And like, I put putting the shared VPC and just publish that out to them, and then. That'll burn
2: you to the ground later. So super fun. Yep. I mean, even I'm glad they're fixing this with guard duty. I hope that they're not, you know, implementing too much complexity on the back end making it, you know, either very complicated to run or or changing the results. But like today I learned that you couldn't previously you couldn't run guard duty and, and inspect those workloads, right? And so there's I'm sure that guard duty is one of many.
0: Yeah. I mean that's that's the thing is you find out things don't work in it all the mm-hmm. time. Because again, going back to two pizza box teams, this is a feature that every team has adopted. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't some of them understand it and some of them don't.
1: And some of them don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: I think you mentioned in the pre-show though, like why does it work for Google?
2: Well, <laughs> I, think yeah, we were talking- I was trying to think through that, right? Because like, it's like what you know, like I feel very strongly about AWS, but it's also sort of following the the recommended best practice of you know having host projects and service projects, and, and sort of having a global VPC. Like, and it's it's because it works. <laughs> it's, it's
0: not, yeah, yeah when they work, it's amazing, right? <laughs> Although, I mean, there are there are gotchas to the shared VPC too. I think when you get into managed services, we talked about kind of the <laughs> complexities of you know how you have to peer that stuff, and there's some there are some challenges to it even on GCP, but. Uh, yeah, I, I pointed out, I think it's more of the fact that Google designed for it from day one versus, uh, you know, I think AWS, it was a bolt on to compete with others who had done it.
2: Yeah, no, it's definitely. And the permission scheme with the isolation at the account boundary is, you know, really why I don't like shared VPCs it's because there are resources in your account that you need to act on that you don't own. And and it causes all kinds of problems. Um you know, I'm, I'm sure they've made improvements since I used it last, but, you know, when you stopped sharing it, it was a resource in my account that I could not delete and did not have access to anymore. Um, that sort of thing. And so that type of thing in Google is solved through, yeah, much cleaner integration with their, their service users integrations and, and how all of that is sort of tied together.
0: So if you're at home trying to think about doing a shared VPC, don't. Yeah. <laughs> we can
1: now. I'm trying time. to see if there's share vnets on on Azure, um, and like, are there better ways to stab yourself in the foot? I mean,
0: there. I mean, there's all kinds of weirdness on on Azure. Like, you get you know storage accounts, <laughs> like driving your head around that earlier. Like the first time I tried to get that figured out, I was like, oh, whoa, that's weird. It's
1: not an account. Yeah, I know, but that's the yeah. thing.
0: They call it an account, and it's not, or a subscription, or whatever. Yeah.
1: Oh no, I don't even know what you guys are talking about. That took me about six months to try to figure out before, you know, the, my my first Azure client, they were like, hey, we need to upgrade all of our storage accounts to be, I think it was just like TLS or something. And I was like, but why is it in a full account? And then you're like, oh no, it's just a construct. It's fine. It's just a thing. Why they called it the an account, I still don't know. Yeah. Just to confuse everyone.
0: Yeah, but you can attach the storage accounts to multiple accounts. So that makes it even more fun.
1: Well, it's just public at that point. It
0: becomes like a shared place for storage, basically, that you can attach to multiple subscriptions and accounts.
1: Well, then you also, the fun is if you try to access for, uh, within the same region, it comes from the internal IP address versus the external IP address, which is always fun. It's a nice little gotcha that you get. Oh, that's cool. So if you're doing any infrastructure code from a centralized pipeline, and if it's in the same region as your orchestrator, and you're creating containers, it will come from the internal IP address for some reason. But from other regions, it goes to the external IP address. And then you just start swearing a lot.
0: And then do you pay different rates for the external versus internal for the data transfer?
1: Probably, but we were just creating (laughs) that. And then I just got mad at everyone. and just said, fine, we'll move our orchestrator to a completely different region we don't use. Anyway, fun-filled.
0: This is, this is why I never uh, entertain recruiters when they call and say, I like a manager <laughs> like, That's okay. I'm all right.
1: I don't make good life choices. What can I say? This is why I do the podcast with you guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Facts. <laughs> Facts.
0: Uh, all right. Um, so you guys may remember that uh, Amazon has uh, made a 2040 edict that they're going to be uh, net zero carbon emissions. Uh, you guys recall that?
2: I do, I do.
0: Yes. Yeah. Do you also recall that they built? Uh, well, they they renamed an arena in Seattle to Climate Pledge Arena to help remind them on a daily basis of their pledge to the world of their 2040 net zero sustainability goals. No,
1: I, I didn't know that.
2: For some reason, I thought Climate Pledge was a company. I did not realize that was Amazon <laughs>
0: by the naming rights. <laughs> yeah. So so, so so the uh, the arena in Seattle where the mm-hmm. uh, Seattle Kraken play NHL team and eventually hopefully the rebirth of the supersonics I'm still bitter, turn <laughs> in hell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, they Well, rene- it used to be when I was a kid, it was key arena. It was built for the Seattle, um, world's fair back in like the sixties. It was they built the space needle basically. And so it's been there forever. They remodeled into key arena in the nineties. And then basically it was dormant for a while. And then when they decided they're gonna bring a hockey team, they remodeled it again Amazon, by the naming rights, named a Climate Pledge Arena to remind them of their pledge to the world of of sustainability. And so you think that this is important to them, right? Uh, Well, apparently not, (laughs) because uh, (laughs) according to the Oregonian, uh, Oregon's smallest utilities is now one of the state's biggest polluters because of Amazon's data centers. Now, sort of weird to me, too, because I always assume that Oregon region was just powered by hydroelectric. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently, that's not the case. <laughs> so, uh, what? Yeah. We <laughs> have a giant
2: river and a whole bunch of dams. How is it not?
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so ba- apparently, uh, you know, apparently the power in this uh, utility started increasing in 2018. By 2020, its carbon emissions had doubled and 2021 doubled again. And this is the Umatilla Electric Cooperative, which is responsible for 1.8 million tons of carbon emissions annually, even though it only has 16,000 customers. It's now the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases among all Oregon utilities. Uh, And Amazon uh, built there because they capitalized on hundreds of millions of local tax breaks to subsidize multiple data centers in the cities of Boardman and Hermiston, uh, where the regional power grid has little access to renewable energy. Uh, Oregon is many years away from expanding its transmission capacity, and with Amazon planning at least 10 more data centers in the region, Eastern Oregon's carbon footprint will only get worse. Uh, Both Amazon and Ubatilla say they're committed to fighting climate change and finding clean energy to power the data centers. And in fact, Amazon did just announce a deal to start buying renewable power from a wind farm in neighboring Gilliam County, but that only represents 4% of their need today. So that's that's not really going to help them out. Uh, so basically, they have allocation of hydropower from the federal government who runs the hydropower plants in, uh, on the Columbia River. Uh, but that's all been allocated to Umatilla's existing customers. And so they had to buy all the power on the open market. And nearly all the available power comes to them from fossil fuel power plants, which is why it's so high. Uh, Amazon, of course, isn't the only data center in Oregon. Uh, but it's the only one affecting Umatilla. Others include Apple, Facebook, Google, and X, which run large data centers in the Dalles, Hillsboro, and Prineville. Uh, the BPA or the Bonneville Power Administration, for those who are geeky about Washington like I am, uh estimates that the data center of electricity use in Oregon and Washington will more than double by twenty forty one, requiring power equivalent to live into a third of all homes in the two states combined. Uh so yeah, so I don't know how they're exactly gonna hit that uh net zero carbon emissions by twenty forty. Apparently Oregon lawmakers did consider a bill to make data centers subject to the state's clean energy rules, uh, but Amazon mounted a furious lobbying campaign to kill that. Uh, and but Amazon Sorry. is supporting legislation to support offshore wind power, battery storage, and clean energy incentives. Uh, but uh, the Oregonian reports that there's no way to pa- transmit that power to those data centers because the transmission infrastructure just isn't big enough to handle the demand.
2: Well, Amazon always has the ace in the hole buying carbon credits, right? To meet their meet the yeah, they're going <laughs> to buy carbon credits to do everything. Yeah.
1: <laughs> there was a. Podcast I listened to at one point, we're saying there's a lot of these green initiatives. Everybody wants to do it. The problem it comes down to the way all this works is like has to come down to like transmission lines. And like, if you say I'm gonna build a wind farm over here, you got to pay for all the infrastructure after that to trans to do it. So you end up like, hey, this fifty thousand, this hundred thousand dollar project now costs you a million dollars because you got to redo it. So like, it almost feels like we have to look at the way we kind of handle our electrical grid to support these. So like a simple wind farm in over here doesn't end up costing billions of dollars. So they're like, why bother doing it? Now the last mile is always the hardest, right? No matter what project you're on.
2: And I think that, that bit of infrastructure is, is the hardest part. Right. And I've even, I've read articles about um, companies that were prohibited from doing upgrades because of like, where, or, they would have had to uh, like enact uh, eminent domain, or they would have had to purchase the land outright. Because even though there was existing utilities, it was a new contract, and that, that owner basically refused. So, like, it's 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 a quagmire. It is definitely a quagmire. So,
0: yeah, Google, uh, Amazon, you should probably uh, try harder <laughs> to hit that pledge. You don't have very many years left, and if you had to build infrastructure to support it, it's going to cost you a lot of money. Let's uh, move on to GCP. Google is expanding the Vertex AI uh, models for Gemini. Uh, Basically, the Gemini 1.0 Pro and Ultra are already available to you, and we talked about those a few weeks ago. Uh, But now, the first Gemini 1.5 model they're releasing for early testing and private preview on Vertex. Gemini 1.5 Pro is a mid-sized, multimodal model optimized for scaling across a wide range of tasks and performs at a similar level to the 1.0 Ultra, their largest model to date. 1.5 Pro introduced a new breakthrough experimental feature and long context understanding, the longest context window of any large-scale foundational model out there today. Apps can now run up to 1 million tokens in production. This means 1.5 Pro can process vast amounts of information in one go, including one hour video, 11 hours of audio, code bases bases with over 30,000 lines of code, or over 700,000 words. Uh, The larger context model has lots of interesting use cases, such as, Accurately analyze an entire code library in a single prompt without the need to fine-tune the model, including understanding and reasoning over small details that developers might easily miss, such as errors, inefficiencies, and inconsistencies in the code. Uh, Reason across very long documents, from comparing details across contracts to synthesizing and analyzing themes and opinions. Analyze and compare content across hours of video, such as finding specific details in sports footage or getting caught up on detailed information from video meeting summaries that support precise question answers enabling chatbots to hold longer conversations without forgetting details even over complex tasks or many follow-up interactions, and enable hyper personalized experiences by pulling relevant user information into the prompt without the complexity of fine-tuning a model. Uh, Vertex will allow you to customize your models, augment the Gemini models via grounding, and manage and scale Gemini in production, as well as you can use Gemini to build search and conversational agents via Vertex AI Search and AI Conversations.
2: This is moving way too fast for me. (laughs) Like, Gemini 1.0 Pro used something like 32,000 tokens, right? Or, or maxed out at that. I can't... I think that's it. Um, yeah,
0: I think that sounds right. And, yeah.
2: and now they're, you know, scaling up to a million. Like, a week later. Like, it feels like... <laughs> <laughs> like, it's crazy. Like, you're going to be able to run this against so many things.
0: I just think it's crazy I that feel the, like this- the Pro... The 1.5 Pro version, which is the middle range, is now equal to what the 1.0 Ultra did, which was the high-end, expensive version of it, at the same price as the old Pro version. Which I think is just yeah. nuts. Uh, you know, 11 hours of audio, though. I was trying to figure out how many how many tokens <laughs> do I need to buy to process the entire CloudPod archive. and I think Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> that was cheap. my first thought as well. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like we could, we could definitely
2: start building some chatbots <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. to pretend to be us on the website.
2: Yep. Yeah, we don't have to search our like our, our our archive notes, right? For did we talk about this already? We could just ask the AI. Yeah, exactly.
0: I, I, that's my goal. I'm just gonna start feeding it the <laughs> cloud pod, uh archive show notes. I'll just be like, "Hey, did we talk about this?" And be like, "Yes, you did on this day." Yeah,
1: it's on the internet. Somebody has indexed it. I'm sure you could. Uh, I'm sure it's in one of these. Yeah, I never actually asked Gemini
2: what it thinks
0: about cloud,
2: the cloud pod. We should maybe ask him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's definitely on, on our, in our G, Google workspace. So it's like, we can probably make this happen pretty easily. Yeah, probably.
0: Uh, well, if you are uh, excited for next, which is just a few short months away, April 9th through the 11th, it feels like we just <laughs> did this. Right. Uh, cause we, cause we did, it was like November <laughs> or October maybe. Uh, the session catalog is now live, uh, which is annoying to me because it can't actually flag any of the sessions as I'm interested in this one. Uh, you know, I can't register for them either yet. So hopefully that happens soon. But it'd be nice if I could like, like them so I could find them later when I actually want to register for them. But um, <laughs> I did take a little uh, look through the catalog uh, and I found a couple interesting uh, courses that I liked. Uh, first of all, it was a, a, there's a build an internal developer platform on GK Enterprise Ops 304. That one looked pretty interesting uh and then a couple others uh, just jumped out at me when i was looking through uh a guide for enterprises how to implement generative ai applications probably something you're all trying to do right now <laughs> so i, I know where mm-hmm. we are uh and then build telemetry pipelines for cloud operations with open telemetry it looked kind of intriguing to me um we'll see as we get closer but you guys also took a little uh look at the catalog what did you guys see that you liked
2: yeah i mean uh, the same vein uh, as your uh the generative ai applications session as i the session uh, that's titled Goodbye Deployment Headaches, Cloud Deploy and Vertex at AI Unite, um, which is Dev 302, uh, is about, you know, how to do sort of CICD or SLDC operations on on your Vertex AI models. Because that's a real world problem right now that I'm trying to solve, like, how are we going to promote these things? How are, How are we going to actually test and, and do regression and, and have some sort of confidence in our in our models and you know it's a, these are difficult problems and they're new so there's not a lot of paved road solutions for them that one sounds good for sure yeah and then i'm always excited about when they you know they sort of do the uh behind the scenes security stuff so there's the cloud compromises lessons learned from man, all the Mandiant investigations in 2023 like i'm super excited by that oh so cause. you don't want
0: to sleep at, at next or
2: Well, I already assumed that everything's bad. So this just gives me like specifics. So I Ah. panic less,
1: kind of. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, I was looking through it and uh, just, you know, I'm always curious about the higher end security stuff. So Ryan went with the mandate. I was just like, you know, there was one about, you know, data exfiltration, uh, SEC 304. So preventing exfiltration using a lot of the built-in stuff so you know back in the day i have built my enough squid proxy egresses and all these other things to help try to you know control data egress from vnets vpcs whatever you want to call them and you know nowadays you have a lot more managed services that can actually do a lot of this for you so just kind of seeing where that all is in the world um and then you know the world around me at my day job but also just in general uh Many customers in the past is always very SQL focused and the running joke that I know that we all have here is once you have a SQL interface, you know, you finally made it as a new platform, mm-hmm. and you know, but trying to get people and seeing how other people have gotten their companies out of being so SQL focused So it was uh, non-relational databases design patterns, how Shopify leverages them to power their business. So DBS three hundred, um, just because. So much data out there doesn't need to be in relational databases. And there's so many other ways to store it. But everyone's first response for, you know, as long as I can remember is, oh, there's SQL. Let's store it there. And I'm like, but why?
0: Because
1: it's SQL. That's why. Everyone stores yeah. everything there. Yeah. yeah. And now that you have a SQL interface, you've made it. Very interesting.
0: Yeah, I am. Uh, there's another one I was intrigued about, mostly because I was thinking there's a good cosplay tie-in called uh, AI and modernization on your terms from edge to sovereign to cross cloud. And I was like, wow, you could come dress with a, with a, a you know, a crown, the specter specter <laughs> could have like an Azure logo on it. You could have an AWS, you know, jacket. Like there's so much opportunity for that one. And that one's SVTL 204. I might do that. I don't know. will see yet. I don't know if I'm that, that bold, but uh, I just like the name of it because I was like, that's a lot of buzzwords
2: you just threw into that title.
0: <laughs> AI, sovereign, cross cloud. We got all the, all the things
2: and uh, rest assured listeners if he does the full cosplay thing there will be pictures we will oh there will be on our more sites yeah <laughs> uh
1: where do i donate to the fund of getting Justin the appropriate tire to cosplay yes yeah, <laughs>
0: Uh, you know, if you're worried about not having enough AI and ML tracks at Google Next, I'll tell you that it is by far the most tracks with 183 different sessions uh, marked AI and ML track. And I just want to compare that to the 43 advanced technical sessions. So clearly, AI and ML is the uh, the place to be at Google Next in April. So uh, I will be there. I believe Ryan will be there. I don't know about Matt. Uh, I think Jonathan might be there. Uh, so we'll, several of us will be there. Uh, we hopefully will have a new sponsor by then, who I think is going to have a booth. And if they do, uh, we were going to have our stickers at their booth, so you can go get them if you're a listener and you're at Google Next, uh, which just be kind of a nice uh,
2: just a bonus for you all.
1: Thirty-six percent, yeah, of this tracks are AIM generated Yeah,
2: it's crazy. That was it's I, a lot. I, yeah, because I was I think there. Yeah, there's only there's five hundred and some like and
1: five hundred six. Yeah. yeah, he
2: quickly did the math. Yeah, yeah. no, that's great it's what everyone wants and it's what everyone's curious about. So it makes sense.
0: You know how the world has changed though is that uh, the one that I sort of was like, oh, I know what's in the Grow Your Startup track, two classes. <laughs> 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 the first one's an AI first accelerator and the other one's accelerating application development with Google Cloud Marketplace. Uh, so one you know, one is just a gimme, but uh, <laughs> I was like, wow, so startups aren't really a thing right now. No. that uh, that's the that macro climate we're in right now. So it uh, <laughs> just shows you, shows you the truth. Yeah. All right. Well, if uh, this next topic, uh, you know, confuses you as much as it does me, Uh, I'm sure there's a session on it. (laughs) Introducing Vector Search in BigQuery, the new advanced AI and ML technologies revolutionizing the way organizations use their data, offering new opportunities to unlock your potential. Google is announcing the public preview of Vector Search in BigQuery, which enables vector similarity search on BigQuery data. This functionality is commonly referred to as approximate nearest neighbor searching, and is key to empowering numerous new data and AI use cases such as semantic search, similarity detection, and retrieval augmented generation within LLM. Uh, vector vector search is often performed on high-dimensional numeric vectors, aka embeddings, which incorporate a semantic presentation for an entity and uh, generate from numerous sources, including text, image, or video. BigQuery vector searches relies on the index to optimize lookups and distance computations required to identify closely matching embeddings. A couple of use cases I gave was give a new batch of support cases. Uh, to find 10 closely related previous cases and pass them on to the LLM as context to summarize and propose resolution suggestions. Uh, give an audit log entry, find the most closely matching entries in the past three days, or give it a picture, find the most closely related images in the customer's BigQuery object table and pass them to a model to generate captions. Uh, just a few of these cases they said you can do with this. So it all sounds like black magic to me. And that's why I'm like, I'm going to go find a class on this. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> Google Next, because I like to understand this better.
2: Yeah, in true form, I'm the only person who's ever explain vector search in a way that I understood even a little bit was Jonathan uh, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, so I'm glad to see you know this being available in BigQuery and like, you know it's super powerful tool still think it's a little like in general tools have not fully adopted this so it's like in BigQuery you can do it now but a lot of other tools maybe not and so it's, but how cool is that if you can search for things that are close
0: yeah I, I definitely see the advantage of it like mm-hmm. You know, I, my trick is I just like, I select, you know, SQL server row one. And if that's the data I want, then I assume that row two is also similar to it. That's how I do it. <laughs> it's not really I the right way to do cards, it. It's you cards. Know, yeah, just like, wild cards. I just yeah. Yeah, select all, put it in an Elasticsearch cluster, <laughs> do a search, <laughs> see what I come up with. Yeah, all, kinds of, all kinds of ways to solve this problem. Uh, so at Google Cloud, they are constantly working on providing you cost efficiency improvements to your infrastructure, which they then will consume with price increases elsewhere. Because Google. <laughs> uh, and today, they're introducing managed instance groups standby pools. Uh, so they say one of the best ways to save money is to stop or suspend your compute engine VM to avoid compute charges for idle instances. Uh, however, if you had your applications being managed with a managed instance group or MIG, uh, this capability hasn't been available to you until now. So now a standby pool for managed instance groups, you can pause and resume VMs manually or as part of a MIG automation and this is a new way for MIGs to reduce costs when pausing applications or enable MIG to respond faster to increase load with pre-initialized VMs.
1: So this is the AWS autoscaling cold or whatever they called it, which is like a server that you can have on the side that like you can just boot up. And the only reason I ever saw to use this feature was if you were auto-scaling or MIG scaling in this case, I guess. Uh, Windows servers, just because they take so long to boot <laughs> why up. Why is it always Windows? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's the bane of our existence. That's why. I mean, it was a nice feature. I, you know, we we set this up for one one person at one point, and it did dramatically help. It, you know, Windows by default, I think it takes like 15 minutes to boot up. So, you know, just having the server there and essentially stopping it off hours kind of lets you do fake auto scaling without actually doing auto scaling, because all you're doing is stopping starting servers. Which is still a savings, like no, mm-hmm. like I, I'll, it's yeah. a significant savings. Yeah. So you're only paying for the
0: storage at that point, not the. Computer. So
1: it, it's a it's a nice feature, and that's a rounding error. You know, you're talking, you know, dollar, you know, twenty thirty cents versus point one cents per hour of it running. So
0: of course, you have to have the capacity on Google to actually
2: be able to stand by or or auto scale <laughs>
1: things. That's, so that's a different, different problem.
2: Thing. Well, I was going to make that joke, right? This is this is how I I'm going to get my resources right i'm going to deploy a whole bunch of migs and then turn half of them off <laughs> exactly <laughs> try to turn them all on at once to see what oh happens. no they won't work <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right let's move on to azure uh which had a kind of slow news week uh in my opinion uh first up they're expanding their footprint in spain by 2.1 billion dollars over the next two years the investment goes beyond just building a data center and is a testament to their 37 year commitment to Spain its security development and digital transformation of its government business and people and this comes actually just announced 3.44 billion dollars investment in germany uh so i guess uh, microsoft's just on a buying spree in europe
2: <laughs> are they trying to like ward off like antitrust lawsuits <laughs> like we we'll just be. dump a much, bunch of money into EU countries I mean, if I were to be a
0: betting man, they're all trying to get ahead of the EU data center moratorium because they can yeah. only build for so long before they hit the moratorium limit. Because uh, they also have power transmission problems in Europe, if you didn't know.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and a lot of these, you know, the long commitments of this are are a way to get incentives and tax breaks from from the governments, and so like yeah, makes sense.
1: Yeah. They say they're going to spend two billion. They'll spend a half a billion, and you know, have a data center there in the future. So when They have
0: a data center there now for them. They'll just okay. expand it.
1: Yeah. Is Azure in Spain?
0: I thought it was Barcelona, I believe is where, or maybe that's AWS. I can't keep these track. I can never remember. Yeah. yeah.
1: I don't remember seeing that. We re- I recently looked through all the regions. Hold on. I mean, it's very
0: possible they don't. They this will be their way to get around the regulation as well. Go to Spain. Yeah. yeah, it looks like but Ireland yeah. and Netherlands are going to Europe. Coming
1: soon. Yeah. Got it. In Madrid.
0: Oh, in United Kingdom, Switzerland, oh, Spain. Yeah. Madrid.
1: Well, what's the paired region? Stored in yeah? DR, disaster recovery, coming soon.
0: Nice. How do you do disaster recovery in one region? It's a fun story.
1: I mean, the same way you do it in the UK. They have two regions located in the UK. Yeah, they do.
0: That makes sense there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> It's an island still, but we need Jonathan to comment more on this. (laughs) Well, uh, for all you basic Azure NetApp
0: file users, uh, this is for basic network features. Uh, You can now edit your volume to get standard network features, which seems like an obvious choice. Uh, Standard network features provide you an enhanced virtual networking experience for a seamless and consistent experience along with security posture for Azure NetApp files. Uh, and before, you would have to reprovision your entire NetApp file system to get access to the standard networking options. Uh, but now, with standard networking over your basic uh, networking, you get increased IP limits for the VNets with Azure NetApp file volumes on par with VMs to enable customers' provision volumes in their existing topologies and architectures. You get enhanced network security with support for network security groups and network control with user-defined routes, as well as you get connectivity over active-active VPN gateway setups for high availability, and express route fast path connectivity to Azure network files for those of you who are using uh, on-prem connectivity to get to your file server on NetApp. Uh, I am sort of annoyed about this one again. (laughs) Like, why is BASIC not provide you active-active and things that are highly available? Like, Isn't that why I'm going to the cloud altogether? But uh, apparently you have to pay extra for that and get the standard package. And I look forward to the future premium and ultra-premium options for network (laughs) files, whatever. That's going to end up being more limits, more more connectivity. I have no idea.
2: I don't really mind that it's, there's a, sure. you know, a, a, a non-resilient option that's cheaper, right? It just, the naming of of these things sort of bothers me. Because you well,
0: you, you've been with executives where they've been mad because you're like, yeah, we only, you know, the basic network thing. Like, why is uh-huh. it basic? Yeah. Well, it's because that's all we needed. Well, you should have the ultra premium. Like, oh, yeah. sure. Okay. Because ultra premium is better by default. Well, it, yes. And expensive.
2: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like it's to call these things basic and standard, which it's not really a description of, of their functionalities where it versus like, you know, comparative S3 has got that, you know, one availability zone or, or reduced resiliency sort of options. So I would
0: say, do you want the reduced redundancy uh, S3 zone? <laughs> like, I great. do.
2: I do. <laughs> there's a Azure data file volume. Like maybe I do. So I can have a dev environment and then of course, you know, they launch a production feature on it. And then we have to, that never happens. What are you talking about? <laughs> they quickly about? make modifications to, you know, scale it up. And now we don't have to redeploy everything to make that happen. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just feel like it's kind of also the way Azure is, is security and reliability. You always have to go to the, the higher tiers, which just drives me a little bit crazy. Like it's not built in day one, whereas we like AWS. I feel like, you know, is their motto is designed for failure. So like, Uh, More of the managed services are by default, and you don't have an option. Like, you can't launch a load balancer without two subnets. You can't launch, you know, your database without multiple subnets. Like, they're just there where Azure feels like you always have to think about it. I'm like, I don't want to think about it. It's rope to hang yourself. This is why paying for a service, like, do it for me. Yeah, at least make it an option,
2: right? Like, don't make me pick a tier of. Of, of a product like you know make it a configuration when i'm deploying this thing that i'm i'm selecting one or the other i don't
1: well then on some services it's like you have to be on the premium tier but then you need two two of them you need two premium tiers Whoa. which is like you might as well just be burning your wallet at that point because you're like cool this is now like you know three grade a month times two and you're like why just it's premium just i'm already paying three grand. just do it yeah. for me
2: and you can't connect two standards <laughs> together right we don't allow that.
1: Like, uh, yeah and the only reason i need premium is because i don't know i want be HA because that feels like it's something i should do when you tell me i need to be able to handle a zonal outage i'm not at all better about this
0: <laughs> well Just but saying. it's also like you know the, the, the things that force you into this like some of them like um uh, you know network security okay so now to meet a basic security requirement i have to be standard to, you know, I, yeah. I have, you know, 10 nodes versus nine nodes. And because I have a ninth or 10th node, I now have to get increased IP limits, right? Like they just feel punitive in some ways where I'm just like, just let me pay for that one thing. I don't need the whole package. I just need, I need an 11th IP address instead of, you know, 10. Um and, then- and the same thing even with the active-active, like I should be able to pay for that and choose, like give me a menu, let me choose the things I want and I'll choose if I want this thing or not versus you forcing me into bundles.
1: That's like, uh if you wanted to, Essentially, connect your front door, so your CloudFront to your storage mm-hmm. account. And you want to go over private link. You have to be on premium, which to, to, like just just to open the door to front door. See how that analogy? Not the front okay? door worked well without planning for it. Yeah, um, it's thirty five dollars to three hundred fifty dollars.
0: that's a big
1: jump. And that's just to. I mean, yes, there's many other features you get, but, but like, you don't need them. Yeah. <laughs> then you're just paying for features I, you don't need. Maybe I don't want them. And if them, you're, uh, right, or I can use them. But yeah.
2: If you're a cloud application developer trying to, you know, be responsible with your cost and your architecture, like, layouts like this are just really just big hurdles that, you know, it's a big like complexity
0: to figure out too, like, and, you know, it makes your audits harder. It makes everything more difficult. How do you yeah. determine, you know, are you doing the right thing? Because like, they have all these options and these things are hidden in options and, and they sometimes move things between these options, right? Like, you know, we don't typically talk about them on the show, but they've moved features from standard tier to basic tier. And I'm sure they've gone the other way before as well in other products. And it's sort of like, well, you know, so now I'm paying, you know, like to, I, I needed this today. I need that 11th IP address and I paid for standard. And then six weeks from now, they said, well, we've limited, removed the limitation for that. They won't tell you, hey, you can save yeah. money. Yeah. Now you're paying for the feature.
1: You also probably can't go down, you probably right, can't too. Go
0: down to because it's yeah. Azure. Uh, Because that'll also be a feature announcement in about two years. Like, hey, you now have the ability to downgrade your your premium and uh, standard to basic level. Because that's also a thing that's kind of annoying about amateur too.
1: There's a a fun feature. I think it's for storage accounts or file shares. Where if you're on premium because you need the higher I.O., you can't do DR with it. But if you're on standard, you can do DR. And you can't downgrade from premium to standard. You actually have to read it. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, how many of you would re- I love
0: Azure. Yeah, it's great. It's great. <laughs> love it. Fantastic.
1: To be fair, all the clouds have these limitations. Oh, yeah. Just it's yeah. all, I just think security shouldn't be an additional like thing that you have to always think about. It should just be there. Yeah, day one. and
0: there's we should definitely one day we should talk about the the things that we learned as we went between clouds and like the things that surprised us and the things that didn't surprise us. <laughs> it's like it's some like good learnings there. There's no email service on Microsoft. There's it's no email service on Google either. No. Yep, nope. and both and both Microsoft and Google sell an email solution, so <laughs> you'd think they both would have it. And like
1: Google's like, no, no, no go nope. use
0: Go use SendGrid or one hey, of the other many uh, email sending
1: platforms that are out there. Microsoft has. Or sorry, AWS has tens of users that use WorkDocs <laughs> and WorkMail. Yeah. Tens, okay,
2: but billions that use SES, maybe, right? Maybe exactly.
1: <laughs> yes,
0: I I think it's probably one of those things of like, well, if you're an e-commerce site, you need to be able to send emails, and so it just it made logical sense to them. Like, oh, you need an email service where like my you know, uh, Google and Microsoft have been fighting spam for decades. They're like, we don't want someone to be able to send emails easily. No, that's terrible.
1: <laughs> Just a different came from a different perspective, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It was just one of the first things they moved over. I was like, we're pa- like SunGrid? Really? Why? And I was like, oh, there's no built-in service. did you even think that was a thing. Okay, cool.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, and there's not even a DNS registrar on Google anymore.
2: They sold that to Square. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's true. I think AWS does employ a small army for the SES abuse team, right? Cause the minute your bounce rate goes from 10% to 11%, like within 15 minutes, you're getting an email. <laughs> yeah.
1: but I can go on a full rant about the SES team because they only will talk to your root user address yeah. and like they'll disable it. Even if you're in, in your terms because yeah, and whatnot, and they just hard shut off. Oh yeah. Yeah. I have, I have many rants about this. They were
0: very transparent about what the rules are. Yes. Sometimes they get misapplied. That's fair. Yes. But also the bounce thing is like one of the only mail providers actually forces the bounce thing. And if you're having a high bounce rate, they'll block you, which is like, mm-hmm. yeah, you're actually fixing the problem. Yeah. And so like, you know, now that's all mm-hmm. required with things like DMARC and uh, SPIF and all other dumb email things they've added trying to make email more secure versus just building a new protocol, which is what I would do at this point. Um, <laughs> you yeah, know, but they... Uh, it's called Slack. Yeah, uh, but you know at least they at least they you know they kind of force some of the things that are now like common knowledge like you have to do a two a two-step authorization you can't just you know sign up for an email account without approval from the user and doing an email verification like there's all those things that amazon kind of forced on that side of it so i do appreciate some of what they did there um there's still a bunch of things i dislike yeah. about SES, as you pointed out uh, but a lot of their crazy nazi stuff they got you know the about the They go away with you. Go with a private IP solution where you have your own IP for reputation, availability, and deliverability. Uh, They get a little less, which is
1: just expensive. I thought
0: it's very expensive for a reason, (laughs) but also you know it it solves a problem, which is that you know you can be a little bit more abusive if you have that setup. Yeah.
1: Also, you could just launch in another region if you ever got blocked, which was a fun thing. They only had two regions, right? (laughs) Three, maybe.
0: Well, they have a lot more regions now for Asia. Do they? Yeah, Yeah. but that was a fun. That was a fun thing in Ohio. I learned like initially they didn't have SES, and so even now, in one of the accounts that I had to manage for my friend, uh, we still send email to US East from all the servers in in Central because uh, they didn't have SES time. And I'm like, eh, moving that's hard. I don't want to do that.
1: (laughs) Why bother? One of the one of the oldest things that one of the oldest setups I've saw was US West One and US West Two didn't have SES, so US East One was all where it was at the time. And all their emails for the last 12 years all go through east yep. one. Yep. The
0: fun. All right. Well, that's it for new news this week. But we do have a cloud journey piece for you guys this week. Uh, and this one comes courtesy of our friends at Google. They wrote a blog post a couple weeks ago. We just didn't have a chance to talk about it till now. Five key things to consider when building a Cloud FinOps team. And so I thought I'd give you a quick summary of this little article. And then we talk about you know building out FinOps, because I think we all have had to go save a lot of money with our CFOs because uh, <laughs> uh, cost mm. overruns at times. Uh, so you know, you're know you under tremendous pressure to save costs, especially in the macro climate that we are all in right now. Uh, and you know of course, one of the big things I'm a big fan of is that FinOps capability. And so Google's post uh, summarizes quite nicely into five key things. Uh, the first one being define your goals and document them in a Cloud FinOps charter. Uh, so the idea here is you're clear, setting clear goals and objectives without a well-defined purpose. Your team may struggle to align efforts and demonstrate value to the org. And the spin up starter outlines the team's mission, goals, strategy, and responsibilities. Uh, some things you should consider gives uh, you guidance and uncertainty. It allows you to get executive buy-in, and prioritization, and efficiency. What do you guys think
2: about that one? I mean, it's definitely table stakes, right? Like that's, uh, I think, for for any sort of initiative, especially ones that shape the business as much as FinOps, right? Having a very clear objective and having it written down and communicated out is uh, very important, right? Because it's you want to be able to frame conversations uh, with the right sort of context. And uh, it's easy to gloss over details like, you know, let's try to make it cheap and let's, we'll make sure to tag everything so there's visibility, right? And then all that stuff goes out the window once, once you're in an implementation phase. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think the one thing that to me kind of felt like a dub, but I think really does need to be said still is make sure you have executive buy in. Probably you're starting this whole FinOps charter because your CFO is freaking out about the bill. But, you know, making sure that not just the CFO, you know, your CTO and other organization members all agree that this is something you're going to do. So you don't have one side of the house yeah. fighting the other and you're sitting there in the middle just going, cool. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. We're here. your performance engineering team is saying increase all the servers, and your your CFO is saying make them smaller, <laughs> get less of them. You, you got to have that that agreement on those things for sure.
2: And I've also had teams feel like you know they were being you know targeted, um, you know, because the, the cost visibility was you know either made public or it was part it was available in the tool, and they you know they felt like it was direct uh, directed at them, even if no it wasn't. So it's
1: you can avoid some of those pitfalls with that with that buy-in from the beginning i mean i think it should be public i have no problem with just showing everyone you should know why everything's costing and build to adjust uh, your
0: dev team will say that's not partnership man so uh, well i just think it's open (laughs) i I think it's transparency for sure and you know I, i think it's important to show it you know but maybe you you start by showing the dev team and say hey in a month or two from now, we're going to start publishing this out to everybody. And so I'm yeah, giving you yes. a heads up about it versus just sending it to the CEO and CFO. Then they're yelling at somebody like, why are you spending all this money? So, yep.
1: there's, a, there's a proper way to do no, it. No, I <laughs> meant yeah. Yes. Yes. No, I, I, was, I was advocating for the second one. <laughs> not just, you know, let's blast everyone day one and see why people are mad.
0: See, I was, I was you know, if we were if Jonathan was here, he'd be all advocating for the first one. Just, you know, throw I mean, everyone under the bus. We've,
1: we've done it. It's the British accent
2: though. It's a lot between Jonathan and I so many times where it's like, no, we're building a dashboard. And if you're touchy about it, suck it up, you ninny." And, uh, it never works out. It doesn't does not work, work for out. you. It's never once worked out.
0: Yeah. There's a reason why people <laughs> think Ryan's an asshole.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Primarily. Cause I am one, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Please see Yeah, I it. Yeah. Mean, he's, he's, you know, he embraces it. I'm right? growing as a person. Yeah. All right, the next one is uh, one that I had never actually thought about, but, but having been reading it, I was like, "Well, oh, that's actually kind of a good one. Develop a cloud FinOps lexicon. A uh, lexicon is a, or a shared glossary of terms, ensures that everyone on the team speaks the same language, reduces misunderstandings, and promotes clarity. And this is especially important, I think, if you're in a multi-cloud environment, uh, which Google didn't say, but I'm adding. <laughs> uh, because... You know, what uh, What Amazon calls an auto scaling group versus what Google calls one, which is a MIG, or what Azure calls them or scale sets, uh, is all different. And so it'd be good to be able to talk the same language across multiple clouds as well as inside your company. And so being able to come up with terms that everyone agrees to are, you know, uh, typically just use Amazon ones because that's what everyone knows. <laughs> but, uh, you know, auto scaling groups, everyone knows what that is. Uh, and then you just translate that to whatever the particular technologies you're working on. But I think this is actually one that I had never really considered. I think I've done it just kind of organically, but like actually calling it out and like, yeah, let's actually have Gossary and let's have the same terms and the same things. We're all the same understanding. It makes a lot of sense.
1: I think it might go also beyond that. You know, talking about like, you know, which I think is somewhat what the focus stuff is supposed to do, but it is you know, trying to distill it down to like, hey, when I talk about a C5 8XL, like what is that comparable to? So like, if you can build, like, hey, we're talking eight core units, you know, that are CPU focused, you know, that type of stuff, I think also helps. Um, just because there's, you know, I'm talking, you know, C five, and you're talking, you know, what uh, what I, I honestly just use AWS because I know them so much better. But you know, talking about anything else just gets hard over time. So bringing it down to not just you know services, but also just compute or other things also helps.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is one area where I really hope the focus standard. Makes this a lot easier. It doesn't remove the need for the the lexicon, but it would definitely make it shorter.
0: Yeah, but yeah, I mean, if you get the lexicon and you have your internal terms you guys all use, and then you have a very simple table that maps them to whatever technology you use on on the cloud providers, this is a helpful CCOE thing in general too. Mm-hmm. So lots of benefits to that. Uh, and you know, we talk about the common language of cloud being kind of important. You know, the common language of FinOps I think is also you know an extension of that, or maybe a small part of it, um, but very important. Next up is establish a cloud FinOps culture. This goes back to, uh, hey, we're going to give you all this information. <laughs> uh, the key things are cross-functional collaboration, continuous improvement, and democratizing cost visibility, which is the thing we just talked about. Uh, so yeah, this is important. Um, you know, why are you doing it? Because we're trying to save money. Why are we trying to save money? Because it helps the company's margin. Why is that important? Because your bonus is paid to it. <laughs> uh, you know, right? people like to make their bonuses better. So if you can help, you know, drive that outcome and help align them to that FinOps culture you know, why it's important, you know, as well as, you know, it's hard to tell employees like, Hey, act like you're spending your own money, but you know, they definitely, if they see the cost of things, they start thinking differently. And Mm -hmm. it's super important to have that in your
2: culture. Yeah. It's super fun to watch that transformation happen, right? From taking a dev team who hasn't had any visibility into their costs, um, to the initial stages of, of bewilderment of why is everything expensive? Um, to actually making architecture choices based off of cost-driven data. Um And it's, you know, it, it's not always comfortable. And, but I, almost every team that I've seen do that transformation, they're excited by the end, right? It's not like, oh, I had to do this and they're, they're, they're jaded about it. And so like, it is one of those things where it's, it allows some really cool decisions and it's, you know, you, when you have the visibility, when you have that insight and, you know, like, like I said, you know, access is clear and transparency is part of your culture. It's super fun. Or I'm a giant dork.
1: Well, I think,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, I think across this too, you want, you, you got to get advocates in there that to help push it. So, you know, from a COE or from a centralized thing, which goes back to like the charter and the buy-in across the organization. But if you also frame it as, let's look at things from a cost perspective and see what other technologies can we use. I've never met a developer that's like, I know this tool. So I, that's yeah, not true. I've had <laughs> met them, but you know, they're they're always interested to, most developers are interested to learn new things, you know, and like, oh, cool. There's this thing over here. Let me go play with it. Like developers, engineers by default want to go play and try new things. So it gives them that kind of option to do it, which is also, you know, if you kind of can frame it in like, Let's do it from a cloud perspective, but like, do you need that thing to be running? Or can we set up a queue and and process it that way, you know, and process through a Lambda or a function or whatever, you know, it gives you more abilities out there and, you know, kind of sets up people to learn new things, which I think also helps everyone.
0: Number four, define a set of KPIs and metrics to measure progress or what Google said, what gets measured gets managed. Uh, you need to gauge the success of your Cloud FinOps team and its cost optimization efforts. It's crucial to define a clear set of KPIs and success metrics that can accurately measure progress and drive financial accountability and value realization in your org. Um, and as you think about these metrics, make sure they're readily measurable, that can be used by your team's, by using your team's and matures, uh, and you can be able to track unit economic metrics. Uh, some metrics to kind of think about, cloud enablement. This can be done by measuring the number of business leaders trained or certified by the total number of cloud learners across the org. Cloud allocation or the amount of tag costs responsible business owners. This metric supports both showback and chargeback models. Cloud optimiza- optimization realized savings is actually the raw amount of money you saved, which resets to zero every year, which is a fun thing. Uh, <laughs> Forecast accuracy... Measuring forecast accuracy enables companies to understand what will happen and if they do what they plan and also allows for better control of cloud spend allocations. And then FinOps automation is measured by evaluating the number of automated recommendations implemented as a percentage of the total list of automated recommendations generated that result in cost savings. Just a few metrics to kind of think about uh, as you go through this. And I, I... you know, these are big numbers that uh, help you show the justification for why you're doing it, and why you're paying for this team of people who are focusing on cost optimization, or why you're you're pushing product or your engineering team or your IT team to save that money. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it's it's kind of it's one of those things that you know I learned the hard way anyway, which is it's really easy to have demonstrable metrics at the beginning of your FinOps journey, right? You're usually cleaning up a certain amount of craft, but Six months in, right, and you're trying to have these conversations with engineering teams. You're competing with, you know, product roadmap, you know, space. Not having a, a very clear communication and, and agreed upon measuring stick is basically, you know, shoot yourself in the foot. And so, I really love that there are examples here because some of these I wouldn't even ex- wouldn't even have considered myself. And I think that that's pretty great. You know, like there's obvious ones like forecasting o- accuracy and and the realized savings, but, you know, evaluating
1: number of automated recommendations that have been implemented,
2: that's fantastic.
1: Yeah, some of it's also interesting, like, you know, your forecast accuracy is also going to go back across the whole organization. So, you know, if you are a SaaS solution, cool, you know, did you get increased? Did you hit your sales targets of a 30% year-over-year growth, you know, when we said that our forecast for our thing was only going to be 10%, you know? So, like, it's going to affect the whole business.
0: Yeah, but also, like, if you get the right accuracy, you should be able to get to unit economics where you know that for every net new SaaS company, it has this amount of cost, and so then that number becomes dynamic based on growth. So, if the company misses their targets, your your expense should be less, and if it kills their targets, then your expense will be extra, and you can explain that very clearly to the CFO and be like, "Well, you know, you did thirty percent more traffic than you or more of sales than you expected to this quarter." And that's hence why the cost is now 30% more higher because of those things. So um, it's important, but you know, also like being able... To, one of the things I always, you know, kind of harp on my headhouse guys about is the forecast accuracy in particular is what line items were we wrong on and why? So like if we expected never transfer was going to be this price and it was up 18%, why? What changed? And if we can tend that back to things that happen in the business, then we can go and actually have a conversation with the dev team and say... Hey, you know, you guys just deployed this new thing, and you happen to use uh, three availability zones when two would have sufficed for this particular <laughs> application. And so now you're costing, you know, way more money trying to replicate traffic across all your nodes across three availability zones. If we consolidate this to two, you know, you get a cost saving opportunity there. And those are things that kind of get really important as you get into that more technical details. Because the first, you know, <laughs> Ryan said, it, "Well, you know, the first six million dollars you need to save is easy,
1: <laughs> because it's
0: <laughs> like, you know, that's what you're over budget." But the next million dollars, gets harder and harder as you start competing with the bigger priorities. And if you don't have the ability to rapidly see the change happening in real time or be able to act on it quickly, you know, again, if it's not measured, <laughs> it doesn't get managed. Yep. Absolutely. And then the last one is choose your tooling strategy carefully and reevaluate it frequently. Selecting the right tools for your cloud phenopsis is critical. However, the cloud technology landscape is constantly evolving and new tools and services are introduced regularly. Considering the following factors when considering tools, the scalability of the tool, the integrations it has, the cost and the ROI of the tool, customization of capabilities, technology, and the user-friendliness of this. And uh, I would advocate at this point in time that most tooling uh, isn't really that helpful beyond the first year of FinOps. So it gets you, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a rapid way to get visibility. It's a rapid way to get you know, very clear recommendations for things you can turn off or move or change. You know, it's all the easy stuff. And I think mm-hmm. you get a lot of value that first year. After that, the value starts decreasing quite rapidly, in my opinion. And, and the other side of this that you need to think about too is that the cloud providers themselves have gotten really big about improving their cost visibility tooling. Amazon's costing stuff today versus five years ago is night and day. Like, it's so much better now. Uh, and then, you know, you have like, uh, the most common one I would do is take Google, use the BigQuery solution and pipe all of your bills into BigQuery. And then you can use Looker and you can use all those. Cool. And they have a lot of quick starts available for you that too. So a lot of the tools, that's what they actually provide as their big value. And you're like, yeah, I get that for free from Google. So yep. why would I Why would I pay you 3% of my bill, which is a pretty big price tag, as well as on some of the vendors will actually charge you uh, on things they can't even optimize, which I think is just absolute BS. Yeah.
2: No, I, I couldn't agree more with the, uh, the usability or the value of a tool after the first year, right? Like there's all the easy stuff, great, mm-hmm. But then the real value comes in to uh, enabling teams to get into like as fine grained as they want to metrics about what changed in their account and and have the ability to empower things like a forecast if they choose separate technologies. And none of that is something that's really available on the market. And a lot of it is usually very tied to your business logic. It's
1: too business focused.
2: So it's something that, yeah, it's
1: all too it, business yeah, it's focused. Yeah, something that's very
2: unique. That point. And so you're going to have to build your
1: own. And I still think that it should be like, I don't know, I've don't i never been fully on board with like the 3% of your bill or whatever it is. I always feel like it should be like, Hey, if you save a million dollars, we'll take a hundred thousand. You Yeah. Know? A percent of savings, but obviously that's impossible for them to actually define because, hey, you scaled up and you doubled stuff and therefore you save zero. Obviously it doesn't work, you know, but it's always, uh, I'm always like, well, this is 3%. This tool is 3%. Like, and all you're telling me to do is buy yeah. savings plans. Cool. You have provided me no value after the first year, like Justin said.
0: Well, and and worse, if, you, uh, if you're you buying savings plans through a tool like that and you're like buying prepays. Uh, they charge you three percent on the prepay too, <laughs> oh. so you know, that could be a big bill that surprises you. So like that's a that's a yeah. bit of a pain. Um, so I I typically will not buy a Clapham tool anymore unless I can get a flat rate. I'm I'm willing to pay a couple hundred grand for it. I'm not willing to pay you three percent. Just yeah. period. Not going to do it. So if you want to sell me this, you're gonna have to you're gonna come up with a better pricing model. And it was interesting because um you know we don't really follow them here, but Oxide Computer, which is um you know formed by a bunch of you know former uh, Amazonian type people who built, you know, basically a cloud solution for your own data center. Uh, you know, they had a blog post called Moore's scuff laws this week. Uh, one of the things (laughs) they said in it, which I found so true was, um, and sorry, I'm kind of jumping in the middle, but, uh, to someone who has just decided to buy their hardware out of their frustration with renting it, the answer feels obvious. Whoever owns the hardware should naturally benefit from its advances. Unfortunately, the enterprise software vendor delivering your infrastructure often has other ideas, and because their software is neither rented nor bought, but rather comes from the hinterlands of software licensing, they have broad latitude as to how it's priced and used. And particularly, this allows them to charge based on the hardware that you run it on to have per-core software licensing. This galling practice isn't new and is in fact as old as the Symmetric Multiprocessing Systems. But has taken on a new dimension in the era of chiplets and packaging innovation. The advances that your next CPU has over your current one are very likely to be expressed in core count. Per core licensing allows a third party who neither made the significant investment in developing the next generation of microprocessor nor paid for the part themselves to exact a tax on improved infrastructure. And this tax can be shockingly brazen. Couple this with the elimination of perpetual licensing, a software cost could potentially absorb the entire gain from next generation CPU. Leaving a disincentive to run newer, more efficient infrastructure. So just like saying that, but, um, you know, same idea of cloud cost optimization. Like if you're yeah. disincentivized because of the cost model that you built into it, it, you know, why are you getting value out of the tool? And, you know, the other side of it, for those of you who were paying attention when I was at the FinOps foundation conference, you know, everyone has the basic things, saving plan recommendations and cost visibility and pretty dashboards. Mm-hmm. And those three things are commodity and available to you on any cloud provider at this point. So, you know, Find the thing that you're actually getting value out of from your FinOps tool, and buy that, and pay a flat rate annually. <laughs> uh, so those are their five
2: recommendations.
0: Uh, anything else you guys would consider when building out a FinOps team?
2: It's yeah, uh, it's it's a special kind of character to hire on a FinOps team. It's uh, you know hiring someone. It's because uh, it's it's a little bit of a unicorn. Someone who's got enough finance chops to understand how. The finance side of the house works um, and be able to do forecasts and and that, but also someone technical enough to engage with engineering teams um, to recommend changes and and really provide that, you know, like it's, you know, no one person is probably going to solve all those things. And so you have to build up a team and have the appropriate skill set. But it is sort of a challenge to build a team from day one because of that sort of need to be bold.
0: Yeah. I mean my recommendation on that is that you hire the more finance focused one who can speak business and then basically give them the goal, take all those early savings you get with the basic savings plans and the basic things you can turn, like turn it off on the weekends. You know, very simple on the surface, but they have big savings. Use those savings and return part of it to the business to show success in your KPIs, but then take some of the funds and buy the next generation of what you need, which is maybe those more architectural people, those more technical Mm -hmm. folks. Um, and build out your team using your savings. If you can do that, it's hugely valuable to a business.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you can do it in multiple phases, right? Like you can, you know, you hire someone just to work on sort of the the base level tooling and maybe, you know, then it's working on providing, you know, reusable components uh, that are geared for cost savings. And then, you know, like a full blown thing. Yeah, you've got a team of architects who are making recommendations, working with teams on driving those changes out.
1: Yeah, don't boil the ocean day one, you know, like everyone here said, you know, you got to take it in small steps, you know, and as you get deeper, you know, it's not going to be as clear cut as, Hey, buy a savings plan. It's going to be, Hey, how can we transform this workload to run on spot and save us that? And how does that affect any of the reservations we have? And so it's able to kind of work through both the technical and the non-technical and, and or the team to kind of have those deep conversations and say, I just said, hey, it's in two zones. Why do you launch it in three? Do you need it in three? Is there a reason? Yeah, it's a tier one service of our entire platform that everything runs on. Okay, yes, that needs to be there. Is it the podunk app that four customers use? Probably doesn't need to be in three zones at that point. But don't tell those four customers.
0: <laughs> those are the most important customers you have, probably. <laughs> They're on a legacy product paying millions of dollars. Right. Uh, I mean, now you shouldn't boil the ocean if uh, your company's going to have business in six months and you're trying to save the company through FinOps. Uh then you know maybe you can be a little bit more aggressive, but uh that's yeah. different. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I, I one of the things I saw at the C2C, which I thought was interesting, um, the guy showed a chart and it was basically an effort versus savings matrix. And so they basically built out a four quadrant box, high effort, low savings, high effort, high savings, low effort, high savings, and low effort, low savings. And then basically kind of, you know, basically plotted out different things you can do from a FinOps perspective into the different boxes. And so, you know, you just mentioned um Spot VMs, Uh, you know, he calls it out as high effort, high savings. So, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, definitely something valuable. You should definitely look at it, but it's not something you're going to jump in first. Where, you know, on uh, low effort, high savings for this one, particularly auto scaling, committed use discounts. You know, very easy stuff. And so it's kind of things like I'll probably share this out as well on my Twitter, so you can go find it there. But. Um, you know really interesting idea of like, hey, how plot out these things because <laughs> there are opportunities that are high, you know high value, low effort, and you should focus on those first. And once you kind of understand what those are, you can kind of move forward very really quickly in this model.
1: I would argue that potentially auto scaling is not easy depending on how serverless your application is because, Everyone says it's serverless until you tell them, cool, we're going to turn this one off and have another one in place. And
0: yeah, I mean, it was uh, in the quadrant, it was a little higher in the box. So it wasn't, it was definitely (laughs) wasn't low in the low
2: effort. It was a little more of a mid effort. Uh, Uh, Yeah,
1: yeah. I would go with mid effort. Uh, Uh, But there's also
2: like, you know, like I think that auto scaling based off of incoming load is one level, but I think time based scaling is still auto scaling, right? Like it turns Mm -hmm. itself off on the weekends at Friday at five. I mean, And those are going to end up as two separate points in that matrix, right? So it's just...
1: And you might not need it. You know, you're getting... If you're getting 95% of your savings without having to do the, you know, the true load-based scaling, why bother? You know, you're getting enough of the savings. I mean, I've told... I've recommended that to customers many times of, you know, hey, don't bother doing that. You're not going to get it. You know your workloads. You know that customers come in I am a B2B business. My customers come in on Monday morning at 8 a.m. and they shut off their laptops Friday at five. Okay, cool. Buffer by an hour or two each way. And even if you just leave it Monday to Friday, leave it running and turn it off on the weekends, you already see a, a pretty good dip there of not running it for two extra days. And maybe you can do figure out the little back, extra, you know, the nights. But after that, yeah, you might smooth out the curve some, but is it worth the you know, the level of effort. And that's something only you as a
0: business can. Yeah. You know, I was, I was running the math on this other day and I was just I'm like, okay, how many, you know, if a weekend's average two days, <laughs> there's 104 of those out of a 365 day a year, you know, that's roughly right there a 30% savings that you can make on your bill just by turning it off mm-hmm. on Saturday and Sunday. So, I mean, like they're, they're very, uh, you know, sometimes they're very simple fixes that have big bank gains when you're talking about hourly charges. So Yeah.
1: Little numbers slowly make yep. big numbers. They add up very quickly. It's kind of interesting.
0: Well, good. I think that's it for this one. Uh, I'm sure our FinOps friends will probably text us and be like, hey, you missed these three things. So we'll have a follow-up <laughs> if they do. Uh, but uh, definitely, I think it was a good good conversation. I think we haven't talked about FinOps in a little bit. so Always good to see a great article from one of our cloud providers uh, You know, telling you all the ways you can save money and then they can charge you more for something else. <laughs> yeah. So appreciate that. Well, thanks. Uh-huh. All right, guys, have a great week. See you next week here in the cloud. Bye, everybody.
1: Bye, everyone. And
0: that is the week in cloud. Check out our website, the home of the cloud pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, send feedback, or ask questions at thecloudpod.net or tweet us with the hashtag pound pod.